and welcome to episode 75 of the Massive Attack Podcast. I am Joe. With me as always is Mitch. Hello. And we are now taking advantage of the fact that we have our new microphone set up. Yeah. Which we had absolutely no feedback for, so we're assuming it's perfect. And well, we got no listeners. Well, maybe. Yeah. Well, we have got one listener, only this week he is actually joining us on the podcast because we have our second ever special guest on the podcast joining us from the Arctic worlds of Ballarat via Skype is Scott. G'day, Scott. Hello, world. It is cold here, I do have to admit. Mitch, Joe, thanks for having me. Not a problem. Now, this is actually one of your suggestions. Now, we did lie at the start of this saying we were drawing random topics out of a hat. Now, I must, full, full disclosure, no, we, we never drew anything out of a hat. <laughs> but when I was talking to you one night on Messenger and saying, would you like to come on the show? And any topics or things you'd like to talk about? And you did bring up The Prisoner. The 1968 or 67? 68, I think 68 it was, yes. 68 television show written and conceived by Patrick McGill. So you call it McGowan. I would call it McGowan. Would you? I think so. Is that because you're Welsh? No. No. I don't know if you know this, Joe's Welsh. I, I like to bring it up every time. Perhaps you can uh, help us with the pronunciation of the location, which I've never mastered. Well, if I was really Welsh, which I'm not, I'm actually English, maybe I could understand that it... Is it Port Merion? Port Merion. Port Merion. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm familiar as it with. Now, you're familiar with the show, obviously, enough to bring it up with us. I was aware of the show. I'd watched the first episode episode about 15 years ago and that was about it because a friend of mine was a big fan and he actually went to Port Merion for a convention so I was aware of it without actually knowing the show and Joe did you know anything about this before we talked other than the episode of the Simpsons where they kind of parody it I knew nothing of it okay so we've got three very different takes on the show from this point yes well should we jump in and let our guest explain what the prisoner is if you'd like very happy to guys the prisoner as you've mentioned was a show conceived in uh, 1967 by very famous at the time, Patrick McGowan. He was so famous, in fact, he was the first choice to play James Bond prior to Sean Connery being offered the role. He was famous for a show called Danger Man in the UK and Secret Agent Man in the United States which had run for three years. Uh, they'd just begun production on a fourth season in colour for the US. The UK was still black and white. And uh, Mr McGowan decided to quit. He wasn't happy doing more uh, more work on the show, wanted to push his artistic boundaries. But, you know, the show made a lot of money, so the producers convinced him to pitch them some ideas they'd want to work on, and The Prisoner was born. So it's he a quit. Hard show Why did he quit? Why did he quit? <laughs> <laughs> Creative difference. Ah. Most of the research into The Prisoner was done in the 80s, so uh, there are competing recollections as, as to a lot of the uh, precise events leading up to it. Yes, I heard there's a lot of conflicting versions of who came up with what. Indeed, but the, certainly the impetus to move from Danger Man to something else was McGowan, and I would suggest that he brought George Markstein on to help him develop theme, and Markstein tied those vaguely into the character from Danger man, John Drake, and his own experiences as an intelligence officer during uh, World War II. Yeah. So he was essentially a James Bond-like character in Danger Man. He was a spy, that sort of thing. Very James character. Uh, mission of the week, Night Rider without the car. Ooh. Exotic locations, <laughs> damsels in secret meeting places and the like. It was it was a wildly popular show and lots of fun. Okay, so he, he left that show and the prisoner, the premise of this is the beauty of it is you don't need a pilot episode, you've got the opening credits, which tells you everything you need to know for this show. Yeah, two and a half minutes of perfectly wrapped up backstory. 
which could possibly be the Secret Agent Man character. It could be Drake, because it starts off with a very angry Patrick McGowan walking into an office and resigning. You get a photo of him X'd out by a typewriter and thrown into a resign file in this big computerized filing system. And he goes home and gets gassed. By, but no, like, <laughs> literally. literally, he goes home and some gas comes through the keyhole in the door by a dude in a top hat and a Rolls Royce. Well, he gets out of the Rolls Royce first and they gas him and he wakes up in a bed in a different that's essentially the opening of the episode and that's essentially the opening of the show and that tells you all you need to know to get into that point. Pretty much. Uh, He's in a a place called The Village. Location unknown, run by people unknown for reasons unknown, certainly well-funded, and they want to know why he resigned. Well, that's the main crux of the story, isn't it? It's like he's trying to find out why he's there and then they're trying to find out why he's resigned. And he wants to escape. Yeah. But he's been given a number. There are no names names in the show he's never actually given a name so it could be drake there's speculation but he's not actually overtly known as that but he is now number six and he's got given a uniform and he has a badge on his lapel with the big number six on it and a penny farthing yes and he is told because there's speakers around this village that he's in to go up to the building with the green dome to see number two now number two is sort of like the person in charge that we see and he is there to explain what's going on and to ask him why he resigned now what you probably should mention and spoilers for anyone that hasn't watched this show from 1967, is number two is played by a revolving cast of many well-known actors? Uh, Some are more well-known than others, but yeah, so the number two character, his job is to find out why he resigned. And pretty much each episode is some sort of plot to get him to give up why he resigned. So when they fail, because spoilers, he pretty much succeeds every episode, he doesn't get done, the number two fails. So every episode they replace him with another number two. Yes, although... I think there's a number two in, is it the second episode, the the Chimes of Big Ben, that episode? That's Leo McKern. Who then... Australian's own Leo yes, McKern. Rumpole of the I Bailey. I was to say probably most known for Rumpole of the Bailey. But he turns up again in the last couple of episodes of the series. Out Correct. Of 16 and 17 out of, of the episodes. But I think he's the only recurring number two. There's one more, but I can't remember his name. Yeah. Technically not a number two. He plays a number two in one episode. And there's an episode where he escapes or sees to escape back to London and that number two is working in the intelligence headquarters there. I thought that was a really good episode. Actually. Ep- episode numbering for the series is That's hotly contested. Yeah, hotly I, contested. Yeah, because I didn't realise but I was told that the second last episode was actually the sixth one filmed. Okay. Which surprises the hell out of me considering how it plays out. Reading the wiki today, they did say that they found out that the show wasn't being continued for a second season after that second last episode and then McGowan McGowan, however you want to call him, had only a couple of weeks to write that final weeks. episode. Try days. Was it days? Days. <laughs> quick turnaround. Yeah, it's a very quick turnaround but there's a real shift in a perspective, I guess you'd say. Just the themes of the other episodes to that last couple of episodes which are very self-contained, all in the one sort of room until well, the Well, the last end. two are definitely different to everything else. Oh, for sure. But is it Mark Steen, his creative partner? Yes, George Markstein. He cracked the shits with um, <laughs> Patrick, I think, but at about episode 11, so you may have seen a shift in tone post that, but I'm not sure if they did it in order or not at mm. that point. But yeah, it definitely had a crescendo it was building to in that way, that the last two were definitely a lot a lot different to what we had before. But the first 15 episodes, they're all essentially, here is a plot to try, a different way of trying to get him to tell us why he resigned. Yep. And some are using hypnosis, some are using scenarios. Mind control, drugs, honey traps, simple surrealism. 
Uh, <laughs> well, simple to start with. <laughs> yep. It's a cornucopia of wild ideas and themes introduced through this rather, you know, opaque spy framework. It's often very, very uh, hard to follow, but it's worth the dive. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you recommended this because, like I said, I watched the first episode 15 years ago and I never got around to watching it again. It wasn't that I didn't like it, but it just didn't. It was obviously other things to do, but I'm so glad. And I only, full disclosure, I only managed to watch about nine of the 17 episodes. Because there are, technically, if you ask Patrick, who you can't because he's dead, but he only wanted to make a seven-episode run. But the production company or the network said, no, 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 it's got to be 17 or 34, whatever he wanted. But So he... 26. Yeah, he strung it out as best he can, but he really only wanted to make seven. So he has a... he has a canon seven episodes that he considers canon. The others are filler, but they're all fine. There's a pretty good flow to the episodes, though. They're sort of your 48 minutes, sort of 50 minutes long. Yep. They're, each of them are continuing the broader story, but they are all kind of self-contained episodes. Yeah. There's like a, a plot twist in each one, and it's nicely tied up in each episode. Mm. But I do like the fact that there is the recurring themes through the episodes. There's um, ongoing things such as just the, the fact that there are other people in the village that seem to be just quite happily living their life in this village and they don't seem to care why they're there they just they're there. Yeah, well, the village is not explained. Everyone has a number. No one has a name. There's their shops. And oh, I suppose we should talk about Port Mirian, or the village, which is a real place in Wales. That's why I thought you might have known it. You might have been there when yeah, you Yeah, we used up. to go on holidays when we were kids. Well, it is a holiday destination. <laughs> it's a resort town. It was designed by some crazy rich person. And it's was it's it got Cl- Roman... Chloe William Ellis or something? Is that his name? But yeah, it's literally um, a mishmash of designs and historical architecture. Yeah. Like in this Welsh seaside village. It looks amazing to go to and I think the BBC used it a lot because all the productions, Doctor Who used it a lot and that because if you wanted to look somewhere that's Greek or you want somewhere that looks Roman or somewhere that looks Mediterranean it was all there. It was this tiny little village that had so many different types of architecture you could just point the camera in one direction and it looked like somewhere else. One Direction, the band. Yeah, so it was a perfect place and I think Danger Man was filmed there there was an episode so he was well aware of this destination and he goes, oh this is a great place and he set it around it. So it's, the village itself is a, is a character in the show. It's it's quite strange, but like you say, there are other people who are living out their existence okay. There are some people who are trying to escape as well. And should we talk about what happens to people who try to escape? Probably. I other- think it's worth mentioning Rover. Yes. I was going to say, other than the human characters, there's two things that really stand out for me in this, and one of them is Rover. Which is a? Is it a sentient, militarised weather balloon? Would that is that how you would call it? That's as good as any description, I think. Oh, look, you could make the argument that it's organic. How, how it appears on the screen. It sort of hatches out and bursts to the surface from its ocean hatchery. <laughs> it, it seems to roar as it floats along and hunts down its prey, captures them as a weather balloon can, and returns them to uh, to the hospital in most cases. It, it's really well filmed, though. I know in that first episode when you first see it, it's kind of bouncing along the road, and it's like, well, obviously they've just put a wind machine behind it to blow it along, but it just looks like it's alive. It's creepy. Yeah. Because it's unnatural. You don't see these things normally, and it's like, that's kind of weird and not cool. You don't want that change. Chasing you. Now, for me, the other design, the rover scenes, uh, really, really sells it. Well, did you hear the story that the prisoner is a lot of firsts, I think. There's a lot of things that have been influenced by the prisoner in a lot of ways, and this predates Jaws in something fucking up and having to fix it. So they actually designed a rover. It was a physical, mechanical thing that was meant to chase people down. It was like a mini moak with bits and pieces on it, and it was a hovercrafty sort of thing. Went in the ocean, chasing the guy down, and it sunk. 
So it didn't work. And they're looking up at the sky. They saw a weather balloon and they said, what's that? Can we get that? And that's how the rover came about. Because they did actually build a physical rover and it didn't work. Like the same in Jaws, how the shark didn't work. So they had to use direction and everything to make a much better film because the shark didn't work. So the prisoner did it first. Just letting you know. The prisoner did a lot of things first. Um, yeah. It, it, even up through uh, to today, the homages and directly influenced media out there greatly outweighs the amount of hours from the original 17 episodes. Oh, heck yes. As I said, I hadn't seen this, and just doing the, the research on the wiki, I was just expecting, you know, 1960s show a little bit of a blurb on the wiki, but there's individual breakdowns for every episode, there's like a, a, a sub-page for the village itself. It, it's really in-depth, and as I think Scott mentioned before, in the 80s when they finally got down to interviewing the creators, and, and there was that whole controversy of who came up with the idea and all that sort of stuff, but a lot of it didn't really wasn't really well known until they actually sat down and sort of said well hang on what's it all about and what's the ideas and interestingly i think when they originally like pitched the idea it was that it was going to be a, a psychological sort of spy drama and it really kind of turned into science fiction and it's the science fiction nerds and people like that that have kept it alive well i mean people wanted danger man more it's more spy drama it definitely wasn't that no the reaction to it was quite extreme people were quite excited by it for the first 16 episodes <laughs> But, uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> it was a big show, and that's what I found rewatching it was it looked fantastic for a start. It looked filmic, like it, it, it was probably filmed on film back then. It wasn't filmed on videotape or the equivalent of, but and it was a big budget show. Like he obviously had a lot of clout when he got approval to make the show, and it looked good. It co-financed with the US. British television didn't have color at that stage, but it was uh, shot and produced in color for the US market. Yeah, and it just looks beautiful because there was just scenes in there, and I don't know because. Patrick did direct quite a few episodes. He wrote a few under pseudonyms, directed a few under his own name. And he's got some, not innovative, but they might have been innovative at the time, but directional choices. But he also, he did a really good job of just looking real. Like, I mean, there's a lot of quirky stuff you can, like even Blake 7, which was a few years later, a lot of the technology just looks made up. It's like, yeah, it's a flashing lighty thing here and it's a this and a that and we'll say it does whatever it does. But this made sense in its weird design. I really like the, the camera on jibs that are floating around in the control room and, and that sort of stuff because it makes it look like they are constantly monitoring everyone in the village and they are zooming in on who they're looking at sort of thing but when you look around the village there's no cameras that you can see in the village it's like they're there but they're not there yeah but to some of the things they do well which even in the 90s they get wrong is if you're doing surveillance on a TV show they'll use the footage from the TV show to say oh this is surveillance footage when it's not where even to this level he actually went and filmed from a surveillance sort of area you know, that would be the surveillance footage cam. We're not just going to reuse footage we used earlier. And we're not going to make it slightly blurry and put a little red dot in the screen like they do with a lot of things no, to show so, that that's the recording. So even video. just to that sort of level, they thought about it. And everything, like when you're saying it is science fiction, because they're using technologies and ideas that are way out of, was not available then. Yet it felt like it works. Well, yeah, you say not available then, not popularised then. Yeah, true. I mean, if you think about things like MK Ultra, uh, Roswell, they, they, these ideas were out there. But hadn't taken hold in the zeitgeist through popular culture when the prisoner came out. True. 
So I didn't really go into a lot of lot of research about when it was shown here in Australia. Was it was it shown at the time in the sixties down I here? I have no idea. Like I didn't see any reference to. Like I just saw it was shown in the states. Uh, I'm assuming it was, but I only knew about this because my mate was a massive science fiction fan, went to conventions. So I dare say it was through that community that he was aware of it. But yeah, I don't know if it was aired here. Do you know, Scott? I, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. I have to say, I encountered it back in the nineties thanks to Foxtel. Oh, okay, Nickelodeon back in the early days imported a, a grand US tradition called Nick at Night where they stopped running the children's cartoons and, and re-ran all sorts of fun British shows and American shows from the 60s like Department S, The Saint, Mary Tyler Moore, etc. Okay. So that's where I discovered it. So it was getting an Australian airing at that stage. It must have had one. But, I'd, I'd uh, say so. It, it does have quite a lot of Australian connections being the fact that there is a lot of Australian actors as we said, Leo McKern, the fact that they're driving Mini Mokes which I thought were only in Australia until I read the wiki of that the other day. <laughs> Leo McKern did a, a, an Australian tour. He was an enormously famous Shakespearean actor in the UK. He did an Australian tour in 1953 that was, you know, major national news and fated at the time. Okay. He, you know, he was he was a huge deal. A Sydney boy made good, and yeah, I can't imagine nobody thought to bring out him in a TV show. Now, I mean, we'll talk about Leo and all that. It's very well acted as well. I said it was very well directed, as very well made, but the acting was great. Now, this, I mean, I love nostalgia. I love looking at 1970s films. I love looking at 60s TV and 50s and things for different reasons, but I do adore the Britishness of it all. Yeah. Like, it's not gung-ho. It's not... There's no shootout. Well, there are some shootouts. Well, there's the only show. guns in that very last episode, isn't there? Pretty much. It's not a shooty-shooty bang-bang spy show, that's for sure. No. And it would have pissed off some people, but it was a popular show at the time, I think. It was popular with a lot of people. Yeah. Until we get to the end, we'll get there. Yeah. But I, I don't know, but did their little jumpy trampoline martial arts thing ever turn into a real thing? Bosho, the sports. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, I, I was quite impressed with that when I watched those episodes. What about human chess? We don't see enough of that anymore either. It's definitely we a show with strange ideas as well. I mean, yeah. it's great, but it, but it all feels like it makes sense. It's, I, it's well-rounded. Wait until you get to the end. It still makes sense. All right, should we jump into the last two episodes? Oh, all right, we can get that. Now, am I right in thinking you studied philosophy at university? Is that right, Scott? I can neither confirm nor <laughs> deny that. That's both honest and maintain the respect of the audience. <laughs> yes. That's just it, because there's a lot going on in these final two episodes, and I'm thinking you well, might have you a better grasp than I. Well, you mentioned earlier that there's a McGowan 7 out of the 17, and uh, it sounds to me like you guys watched the uh, what's known as the ITC viewing order. Yes. Uh, which is how the DVD sets and the VHS sets uh, tend to come packaged with the chimes of Big Ben as episode two. Yep, that's right. Yep. It's generally pretty well understood that Arrival is episode one and that the last two are the last two. They're often uh, seen as a two-parter, but uh, they're also uh, two distinct episodes. The first is Once Upon a Time, and it sees the return, as we've mentioned, of Leo McKern as number two. Uh, the second is Fallout. And in Once Upon a Time, Leo McKern speaks on the phone with a mysterious superior and calls for degree absolute, which rattles his staff and it sounds like his superior as well, but he insists on it. And he and number six descend 
into a bizarre playroom where various hypnotic attempts are made to regress number six to a state of childhood to root out the cause of his stubborn individuality. It's an amazing 44 minutes of television. When I first watched it, the first thing that came to my mind was they must have had some really good acid in 1967. I mean, it's very much a minimalist play in this way. I mean, they're both actors. They've both done a lot of theatre. And this is very much that whole, we're in a open stage with a few props and they acted the shit out of this. Unlike the rest of the series, which, as you've mentioned, is a visual feast at times, Mm. almost unheard of in television. There's no background for most of this episode, just the the simple sets which are built out of what childhood toys from the time. And it's it's pretty much Leo McKern doing most of it in this one because Patrick is regressing, so he's sort of growing up again. So he's a child or playing childlike in most of the story. So he's not saying a lot. And when he does, it's, it's quite funny. But Leo is putting on a storm as far as he's he's acting to the bleachers, even though he's on television, but it's there. And it's great. And you don't really know where it's going. I mean, most of the show, you don't have that feeling. You, you got the idea. What they're trying to do is they're trying to break number six. But it gets pretty heavy. <laughs> Especially towards the end. The fact that he's constantly baiting number six to sort of, you know, tell him why he's why he's quit. And there's that scene where they're sort of boxing with each other and he's like, you know, jabbing at him with the boxing gloves and it's like, Tell me, tell me why you quit, sort of mm. thing. And and then they're fencing and, and, and it's all very full on. Yeah. McKern is number two assumed all sorts of dominant authority roles. The boxing instructor, the teacher, the father. And yeah, McGowan is a, a chiseled jawed, wide eyed child for most of the episode. Yeah. So the idea I mean I mean, we only see it obviously for 44 minutes, but it's they're in there for a week. You get that feeling. I mean, they do it, convey it quite well, and they, they look broken at the end. But as is with the prisoner, number six, he ends up winning by Leo McKern ends up breaking down in the end and regressing, and it's sort of they twist at the end. Yeah, and like, they, they kind of make it look like number two has died, but then he comes back again in the final episode. Yes, uh, but apparently um, didn't Leo McKern actually have a nervous breakdown or a heart attack during the filming of this episode? I did read that. Yes, story. Uh, Leo was sadly passed away, but uh, and stories conflict as to whether it was a nervous issue or genuine heart attack, given he was back filming in short order. Uh, one assumes the former, but yeah, the, the, the filming took a toll on both of them. Well, you could tell. I mean, you watched it. It was he was getting into it, especially that last scene where he appears to have died. It's a tour de force. I'll give it that. Yeah, I was really amazed by that. And unfortunately, so that ends with this number two failing in his duties. Number six pretty much gets to the limit of what he can do. So there's this one other character who was semi-recurring who's sort of like head of security for the village he sort of comes in and says all right you've passed what would you like he goes i want to see who number one is because the recurring theme is number two is in charge but who's number one that's the the question he goes to the security guy saying i want to see number one so okay let's go and that's how the episode ends so the second last episode ends with him going all right you can go and meet number one so this is where your philosophy (laughs) might come in handy for this last episode because I think we might need it. Well, it debate has raged for decades amongst minds much smarter than mine <laughs> on uh, what, what happens on screen. Yes. As mentioned, his number six is ushered off to meet number one. Instead encounters a large antechamber full of masked and robed figures seated at a UN assembly table with plaques marking out their uh, functions and responsibilities. Some people look after anarchists. One looks after education one looks after the environment and there's one figure dressed as a judge in in, in classic English
English legal red yeah. robe and wig, handsome man. And he proceeds over a number of trials. First from uh, a character who, I don't know if you gentlemen watched the episode Living in Harmony, which was the Western episode. No, I didn't actually watch um, that one, unfortunately. I think the kid appears in that one as a survival gunslinger to number six. And he is he's tried and sentenced and sent down the chute by uh, the judge and this jury of masked people. And then number two is brought forth and uh, newly shaven and judged and sent down the tube and number six is acknowledged through the force of his individuality, will and stoicism to be the superior man and is invited to descend in the much nicer tube to uh, to the depths, to the uh, to the centre of the maze, as it were. And I do like uh, the effect which, of them like shooting the fire extinguisher up through the tubes to make it look like there's you know smoke coming out of them or something. Quality English special effects there. It was very interesting to do that immediately following the episode where they'd uh, shown the butler shooting a smoke machine up yes. at them pretending to fly bombs. Well, here's one character who's been there the whole time. There is a, a, a little person who is, is he a little butler. person or is he just short? I think he's a little person. But he's a butler who says nothing and he's in many episodes, if not all, and he just seems to be involved in everything. Like a true butler should. in about thing. Okay. And yes, no number, no name. Uh, a, a functionary to number two right up until this final episode where he switches his allegiance to number six, although you do get the sense that he has affection for number number six all along. Hmm. Yeah, so they descend into the tube, they go down some stairs or up some stairs, and he comes across what we think is number one, or is number one. It's a guy in the cloak and the robes, like the other guys downstairs with a mask. He rips off the mask to reveal another mask. mask. (laughs) And then, now, did you pick up on this? If I didn't know, I was aware the last episode was a bit bugfuck crazy, because I just know other people have seen a lot of the parodies or homages since, so I'd hate to think in 1968, what I would have thought of this but I was kind of prepared but still pretty fucking weird and then he rips off the monkey mask and it's Patrick McGowan is number one now if I didn't know that I probably wouldn't have picked it because it's a very quick cut for me yeah. and he was wearing a cloak so it could have been anyone yeah. for my sake but I know it's meant to be him and I think on the wiki they said because he is a prisoner of his own mind or something and that's how they kind of tie it all together but, yeah, there's nothing I mean, explicitly and to this day the debate rages the ending is marvellous once he rips off the face one climbs up a, an escape hatch and disappears and that's it there's the reveal and the mocking laughter and he's gone yeah. and number six the kid slash number 48 and the former number two our good friend Mr McKern uh, escape in the uh, prison slash van which uh, through the streets of London singing dancing and disappearing into the horse. <laughs> <laughs> the use of the music in this last couple of episodes I thought was really good as well. The fact that they've got that Beatles song, the All You Need Is Love. They've got the, the bizarre Carmen Miranda and Carmen Miranda's I, 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 I Like You Very Much. And you've got the, the singing of them bones, them bones, them dry bones. It's It all just ties together really well, even though it's very eclectic in the mix that it is. But yeah. on, the, uh, on the Beatles track, it's one of the, the few places where the Beatles let them use the actual studio recording rather than a cover version of their tracks. The, the Beatles were huge Prisoner fans, and before uh, the reaction to the show curtailed Patrick McGowan's career a little, there was a lot of talk about them doing various film projects together. Okay. Mm. Well, interesting, though, reading the 
the wiki, the fact that when people knew that this was going to be the final episode, there was a, a massive tuning in to watch this episode when it was live. Obviously, there was no VCRs back in those days, so you couldn't you know, miss it. You had to watch it live. And there was quite a backlash towards Patrick after this, with the fact that people didn't feel that it was enough closure. And so I, he did that before Lost. Yeah. Lots of firsts here. Uh, and I think they said he went into hiding for a couple of weeks because he was just worried what fan reaction was going to be. Yeah, how much is true about him going into hiding? You probably went on a holiday, but yeah, I, I could understand if you saw him in the street, you'd say, what the fuck does it mean? I, I will get that because I love it. I was prepared. It wasn't overblown. I, I'm sure people were a little politer back in uh, 1968, you know, internet uh, trolls after day, but nonetheless, he uh, he felt legitimately threatened. Yeah, like I said, I'm glad I watched it now. I'm a lot more ready for this sort of stuff and I was prepared for it. So I remember, I mean, I got a very big David Lynch feel out of this and I am loving David Lynch at the moment. I, I love David Lynch and I'm watching the current Twin Peaks which is airing at the moment and I am loving that and a lot of people are butthurt about it but it's like I'm in this new world and I've talked about it on the podcast before where I didn't like Man of Steel at the time because I was too engrossed in what it was about until I found my zen moment and I just let it happen. I just let it happen and I just don't care and just that's fine. So that's what I was doing with this last episode. I knew it was going to be weird. It probably won't answer my questions. I'm not going to get angry about it. Just let it happen and I love the shit out of it. Yeah and, and I, I did something that I don't normally do and I didn't wiki anything about it before I watched the last episode. Lucky duck. I just went in completely cold and thought, all right, I'm just going to go in and see what happens. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad that I did, which is a lot of people, if they haven't watched it now, obviously, spoilers for this episode, they're not going to have They're still that. going to get freaked out if they yeah. watch it. It's fine. So it, it is available on DVD and Blu-ray here in Australia. And we watched most of it ourselves through a website called archive.org, yep. which I'm assuming is legal. I, I <laughs> Sounds official. Well, it's an org. Exactly. It's a dot .org. It's not, it's not a, a, you know, a, a, a torrent site. But they had all the episodes in quite good quality. Very good quality. I was yeah. surprised. Mm. Yeah. And I, I really did enjoy the fact that I could, yeah, as I said, going cold, not know much about this other than the fact that I've seen that one episode of The Simpsons with the rover. And yeah, I, I'm glad we watched it. So yes, thank you, Scott, for choosing this for us. Because like I said, I haven't seen every episode, but I'm definitely going to go back and fill it in in the next week or so just to catch up because I wanted to get to the end. So I watched the sort of the canon episode episodes to get there, but I'm definitely going to go back and watch them all. You're in for a treat. Even the non-canon episodes have a lot to offer. It's a joy from wall to wall. We talked about being a lot of firsts. It did Jaws before Jaws. It was Lost before Lost. It was Twin Peaks before Twin Peaks. I think it's influenced a shitload of people, a shitload of creators. It's been parodied, it's been homaged, it's been everything. It's it's in music, it's in comics, it's in movies, it's in TV. It's it's quite an influential, and a lot of people probably don't know about it. And an Apple IIe game in the 1980s as well. Oh, really? Apparently, yeah. Huh. DC put out a uh, comic in the uh, in the 80s, an official licensed sequel. <laughs> there, there are also some long out-of-print novels that follow up on the show, and a 2009 remake with Ian McKellen, which Now, I am tempted exists. by this. I know I shouldn't be, but it's got some good actors in there. It certainly does. It has a, it, it has a, a, a very solid cast. It's hard to articulate why I felt that it misfired, particularly seeing as I haven't gone back to it since 2009. <laughs> so I haven't seen the remake at all. Was there Minnie Mokes in the remake? No. See, that's uh, why it didn't work. <laughs> has it got Rover? <laughs> It, it does have a rover. Oh, that's all right. Um, it's not not worth seeing, but it, it doesn't it doesn't live up to what any prisoner fan may have been hoping for. 
Well, that's a shame. I think the fact that both Mitch and I are very time poor, if we were going to make the effort to watch anything else, Prisoner, we'd probably just go back and watch the episodes we've missed rather than watching the remake. Uh, I don't know. I like a train wreck. I'll probably check it out. Just so I can get angry at it. I'm definitely tempted. Is it set in the village? Did they go to Port Miriam or is it set their own reversion of it? No, this is uh, definitely reimagined. Ah. They built a brand new village in the desert and it looks like a, a holiday resort built around a couple of old buildings and fairly mundane main streets. Okay, because um, it, does, it doesn't have anything of the charm of Port Merion at all. Shame. Yeah, because one of the original, I, I don't know how true this is, but one of the original ideas for the series was a retirement resort village for ex-spies. Yep. And that's what the village was. And this and this is one of the theories. So it's not true. It's just a theory. But number two came up well, with the idea for this and it was meant to be a resort thing. And then he found out about them that someone had turned his idea into reality. And he got himself resigned and taken there because he wanted to break it down from the inside because it was being turned into a, not a weapon, but it was, they were trying to find out from all different different people going, why did they resign and this and that. It was meant to be a, these are dangerous ex-spies, let's put them in a place and keep them safe and away and nice. <laughs> and someone had turned that on him. So he actually purposely went in there to try and work out who was using his idea evilly. And that's why he is number one, because he's the one who came up with the idea originally but that's just a theory like I was saying but so that, I don't know <laughs> and apparently there are things theory. that is based on a reality that there were villages set up for ex-spies ex-service people things like that so it is based in a semi-reality anyway well supposedly George Mark Stein's uh, career as an intelligence officer is where he encountered uh, nothing to the extent of the village in the show but a luxury hotel deep in the Scottish Highlands where during the Second World War they put high value people to who couldn't be thrown into prison because they were aristocracy but you know couldn't be let out to talk to anybody else either so, yeah you know the, the there's allegedly a historical precedent for the village mm. now the simpsons episode makes a lot more sense to you now joe it does because <laughs> there's an episode from i think it's season 12 called the computer war menace shoes with the main premise of the the episode is homer gets his first computer and he goes on the internet and makes a web page where he makes up fake news he starts off making real news and then he runs out of news to print so he starts making up stories and then one of the stories that he makes up is actually a true story and the government catch him and take him to an island similar to the village where Patrick McGowan actually guests in the episode as number six and there's a, a good bit with the rover where the rover comes after Homer and he just pops it with a fork and it's kind of like well why didn't anyone ever think of that before but yeah it, it all falls into place now it's now that I've seen the source material it, it kind of makes sense yes yeah I think there's a couple been a couple of other uh, prisoner records references through The Simpsons in the intervening years, but I don't discuss anything past the classic age. <laughs> and there's an episode of um, Reboot, which has the final episode of The Prisoner, where it's got the people in the you know black and white masks, the weirdness, the strangeness. It's, it's just as surreal as the episode. Because I hadn't seen The Prisoner at this point, I had no idea what this kid's cartoon was all about. But yeah, they went nuts with that one. Patrick McGowan plays an ex-spy in an episode of Columbo, is pretty much playing himself again. It perpetrates a lot of, even into the 90s, but even a lot of 70s, 80s and 90s television oh, and not things. just television it's like the the list of songs that have been influenced by it obviously there's the Iron Maiden song from Number of the Beast called The Prisoner yes. where they actually used the sample of Patrick McGowan doing the I'm not a number I am a man who is number two who is number six and all that sort of stuff which is at the start of the song The Clash did a song called The Prisoner which is themed 
from the movie. There, there's, you know, there's lots. And um, apparently the episode, was it Bruce Dickinson with Iron Maiden? Yes. Like he was there, the band was there, the manager, and they were wanting to use some footage, the the audio from the TV show. And they're sitting around the intercom ringing Patrick McGowan saying, oh, and apparently very stumbling <laughs> over his words and asking him if he could do it. Oh, please, we would like to do a song. We've going to use this thing. And from the other end, just got Patrick going, do it. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty cool. All right. Well, Just Do It is probably a good place for us to wrap it up. Scott, have you got anything else you want to add before we finish up? Oh, look, only that uh, I, I think at the end of uh, Once Upon a Time, the prisoner actually got broken, and number six is insane. And the Brazil ending. Out ah. is his uh, psychotic break. But that- I think there is as many theories about the ending as there are uh, viewers of The Prisoner, and I encourage everybody to go and develop their own theory. Excellent. So thank you again so much for putting, putting us onto it, and much appreciated. And we'll definitely have you back soon. I think there's an episode very soon that we might have you back for. Could be. Close to my and your heart. Joe has no idea what we're talking about. And I think that's why we want you to come on, because Mitch talking for an hour and me sitting here nodding wouldn't make for a good podcast. So we might see you back very soon. Be seeing you. All right. Well, that's a nice place for us to wrap up. Thank you again, Scott, for joining us. I will just go through the normal bits and pieces that if you do have any feedback for us, jump on our website. We are themapodcast.podbean.com. You can find us on facebook.com slash the massive attack podcast if you have any feedback jump on let us know tell us what you thought of the prisoner tell us that we're idiots for not talking about b smith and lizzie birdsworth all right poor prisoner joke there but anyway until next time thank you mitch thank you scott thank you viewers and we'll see you next time